As you take your seats, Hebrews chapter 10. I got a bass voice today. <clears throat> We're going to make it through, though. Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. <clears throat> there was a man walking down a country road. He was walking around this country road, and the year was 1959. 1959. And he came across this gas station. Not this one in particular, but this old gas station on this country road. And he saw lights on. He saw cars in the parking lot. So he goes inside. There's hot food on the counter. There's music playing. But there's no sign of anybody. The place is completely empty. Nobody behind the counter, nobody inside, no voices, nothing. So he hollers out, hey, where is everybody? Where is everybody? No answer. He leaves the gas station and continues his walk to the nearby community, this little downtown. And just like the gas station, the lights are on. There's even music playing. There's cars parked. But there's no voices. There's no people. He goes into buildings. He goes into the courthouse. He goes into the police station. He goes into all these buildings, and there's nobody. And again, he hollers out, hey, where is everybody? No answer. I mean, just imagine yourself coming into Enid, not seeing any cars driving, signs of life everywhere, but you go into places, you don't see anybody, as though you were the last person on earth. So this went on for hours until it was nighttime, and the man has gone everywhere, all over this town, this community, and there's nobody there, and eventually he just starts hollering, where is everybody again, where is everybody, where is everybody, he's running everywhere, and he begins to bang on anything that he can bang on. And then he wakes up. And come to find out it was all a dream. Actually, not really a dream. It was a hallucination. In reality, the man was not at that gas station. He was not in that little community. The man was sitting in a small compartment owned by NASA. NASA was doing an experiment to see how long a person could be in complete isolation before they snapped. Now, some of you are like, I was alive in 1959. I don't remember that story. Because what I just told you is not a true story. What I just described to you is the opening scene of the first episode of the Twilight Zone series. <laughs> One of my favorite TV shows, by the way, is so great of a TV show. Not the new one, you've seen the new one, the old classic, late 1950s, early 1960s. The first episode, literally called, Where Is Everybody, came out in 1959. Rod Serling was the writer and director of the Twilight Zone TV series, and he often drew on the psychological, the emotional, and the physical effects of loneliness and isolation, the effects on people, when they were broken from, 
or dwelling outside the community for long periods of time. And what's amazing to me is that he often did this, and this was the late 1950s, early 1960s. When it comes to loneliness and isolation and its effects on us mentally, emotionally, and physically, think about where we are today. Think about where we are today. Fortune Magazine said, humans were not designed, this is a secular source, humans were not designed to be solitary creatures. We're not talking about going and having dinner by yourself one evening or something like that. We're talking about prolonged period of time in solitary confinement. The need to interact is deeply ingrained in our genetic code. So much so, says the University of Chicago's Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience, that the absence, the long absence of social connection triggers the same alarm bells in your body and in your mind as hunger, thirst, and physical pain. Thus, the New York Times said, loneliness, the state of it in our day and age, in places like Great Britain, is being viewed as a quiet devastation and has even become viewed as a serious public health issue. Here's what's even more amazing. This recent research is only revealing what Rod Serling knew 60 years ago. What scripture knew thousands of years ago, what God has known from the beginning. It's not good for us to be alone. To be isolated and lonely. Secluded for long periods of time. Away from or outside the community. And all that research and all those comments I just read to you also. All that came before COVID-19. So now imagine in this post-COVID world just how lonely and isolated we've become, generally speaking. Yes, we live in a world of growing connectivity, but with that, there's become less connectivity, less face-to-face, less doing life together, less meeting together, meaning less drawing near to one another which is causing a growing epidemic of loneliness and isolation, affecting people, even some in this very room, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Because we were designed, created, with a foundational need to be close to others, to draw near, to meet together. It's not good for us to be be alone. And this is especially true in our spiritual lives. We were not designed to walk with Christ and in Christ by ourselves. The idea that, well, I don't need the church, I have Jesus, and that's it. That's foreign to Scripture. You need the church, we need each other. After all, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
one God, three persons. The Trinity dwells in community. And we were created in the image of God, designed to live in community. So we need community, and we are better together. So if you haven't caught on, we begin this new series today, Community Better Together. And over these next few weeks, we're going to emphasize the importance of regularly meeting with other believers. And what that meeting together ought to look like, or what ought to characterize that gathering. And how we ought to meet together on a large scale, yes, like this, yes. But also in the context of small groups. And overall, we'll see how we are truly better together. So Hebrews chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, turn to verse 24 and 25. And this is what we read. Let us consider. Let us pause and evaluate and consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. This is like a passionate argument. How we can compel one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up or abandoning meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So the author says, listen, the end is near. The day of Jesus' appearing, the day of the Lord's coming, the culmination of where this is all leading is approaching. It's so close. It's so near. Therefore, as it approaches, let us ultimately do one thing together. Let us meet together. Don't make it a habit of not meeting together. Don't spend long periods of time away from or outside the community of believers. Let us meet together. Now listen, this isn't merely let's just gather in a location, shake hands and say hi and then leave. This isn't about attendance. The author doesn't have in mind a meeting about location or surface level gathering, but a certain kind of meeting. A kind of gathering together with one another that is rich and deep and authentic and transparent and meaningful and vulnerable in which we are drawing near to one another. That's what he has in mind here with meeting together is drawing near to one another. In Acts chapter 2, we read a summary statement about the early believers and how they attended the temple together. Yes, they gathered in large groups like this. But also day by day, they broke bread in their homes. Throughout Acts, we see the early church meet together in a, reach, in a rich, deep, authentic, transparent, meaningful, vulnerable way. 
where nothing is holding them back from each other. They're not putting up walls to each other. They are truly and wholly invested in the lives of one another. Think of it like this. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus told the parable, this story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story that's very famous. We've looked at it many times. What happens in the story? A man was on this road going down to Jericho. A bunch of robbers came out. A bunch of rebels come out of nowhere hiding. And they beat up the guy, steal from him, and leave him for dead on the side of the road. And so then here comes a priest, and the priest sees the man, and he doesn't draw near to the man, instead he draws away from him, and crosses the other side and continues on. Then comes a Levite, and the Levite sees the man, and doesn't draw near to him, but draws away from him, and continues on down the road. And then comes a Samaritan. In that cultural context, for the Jews listening, it would have been the least likely person that they would have soon would have stopped. But the Samaritan sees the man, and what does he do? He draws near to him. He meets with him, so to speak. And he serves, and he helps, he encourages, he gets involved. Jesus calls us, to live like the Samaritan. The author of Hebrews would have in mind the meeting together, meet together like that. That's how you ought to meet together. Draw near to each other. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't put up walls to each other. Be truly and wholly invested in each other's lives. So Jesus calls us as his community of believers to meet Together, just as the author of Hebrews does here, in the same kind of way in which this Samaritan man met with the man on the side of the road and thereafter. Not just merely in location. The priest and the Levite were near this man in location. But you can be near someone in location, but still remain at a distance. You can be near somebody in that pew in front of you, but still remain at a distance. We are to truly meet with each other, to draw near to each other. And to do this, we must meet in a specific way. And I think the answer lies in that parable. When you evaluate and compare the actions of the Samaritan to that of the priest and the Levite, there's three things that we must do when we meet together, thus fulfilling what the author of Hebrews has in mind. By drawing near to each other. The first thing is this. When we meet together, we must meet unencumbered. We must meet unencumbered. We're never told the reasons or the excuses for why the priest and the Levite refused to draw near to the man. We're never told the reason. Maybe it was time. I don't have time to invest. I don't have time to get involved. I don't have time to get in a messy situation. 
I don't have time to interact. Maybe it was money. Man, this guy's going to need all sorts of things, resources-wise and money-wise. I don't either, A, have the money or want to spend the money. Maybe it was just a personal situation. Maybe the priest and the Levite were battling anxiety or doubt or fear. This was known to be a road that was dangerous. Maybe they were afraid. Or maybe they were just biased and full of hatred. Either way, they were encumbered, loaded down with baggage that prevented them from drawing close to another person. And right after Jesus told this parable in Luke, we read about Mary and Martha, that famous scene, where Martha was encumbered, carrying a lot of baggage that kept her from drawing near to the Lord. And when you're kept from drawing near to the Lord, you will be kept from drawing near to others. So what we have to do is we have to allow Jesus to get rid of the baggage in our lives, whatever that is for you, to get the plank of wood out of our own eyes, so to speak. We must cast all our cares on him, give him anything that is weighing us down and preventing us from drawing near to him or to each other. We must meet unencumbered. The second thing we must do is meet unguarded. The Samaritan approaches a situation that he has no idea about. He draws near, though, and by doing so, he enters into a vulnerable situation in which he's unguarded. But by doing so, it allows him to be this man's neighbor, which is what Jesus is calling us to. It allows him to truly meet this man's needs. Now Noah, our oldest, eight years old, loves anything soldier related. He loves army. He loves battles. He loves wars. Just talking about them, asking questions about them. A few years ago, we were in Cushing at this fly-in fair where they had an old war reenactment, and this is Noah having the time of his life dressing up as a World War I soldier. He loves army and anything battle-related. And any time we're at home playing battle with things like Nerf guns, what does Noah do? He hides himself behind something. Why is he doing that? He's guarding himself. He's protecting himself which make no mistake about it, is a smart thing to do. But when it comes to drawing near to the Lord and to each other, it can also be a hindrance. Not allowing yourself to be vulnerable or open to another person. It will always prevent you from being close to that person, from actually meeting with them in the way that the author of Hebrews has in mind. Now listen, Living unguarded, meeting unguarded doesn't mean that we're not smart or that we don't walk carefully into situations. But if we expect to be close to one another, to draw near to one another, then eventually we have to quit hiding behind walls. As an individual, as a marriage, 
as a family, you, you got to quit wearing a mask. You got to get real. The priest and the Levite allowed cultural or religious or personal reasons to function like walls. And it kept them at a distance from drawing near to another. And the twist is, it also kept them from the Lord. The Samaritan, despite cultural or religious or personal reasons, allowed walls to come down. He allowed himself to be vulnerable, unprotected, unguarded. And he went and met with this man. In order for us to truly meet together, walls got to come down. We got to quit hiding. The third thing is, is we must live unrestrained. We must meet unrestrained. We must be truly and wholly invested in each other's lives. The Samaritan was overly excessive in his interaction and involvement with this guy. And the guy's a stranger. It's not a family member, it's not an old friend. He's a stranger. He went above and beyond, serving and helping and giving and providing. Now this doesn't mean we do whatever, whenever, however. We meet unrestrained, we live unrestrained when it comes to our sacrifice for one another. Expressing our love towards each other in our gifts and service for one another. I'll give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 4, we read that all the believers at this time were united in heart and mind. They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. Because those who owned land or houses, plural, would sell them, bring the money to the apostles, and give to those in need. For instance, there was a guy by the name of Joseph. The apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, probably a very significant field worth a lot of money. And brought the money to the apostles. He lived unrestrained. Just as all the believers at that time did. We are to live and to meet together unrestrained. Letting nothing or no one hinder us from giving. From serving. From sacrificing. From being truly and wholly invested in each other's lives. Ultimately, we're called to meet together. And as we meet, we're called to consider and to encourage. Think about ways how we can compel each other towards love and good works. How can we encourage somebody? But in order to do that and not make it a habit of not truly meeting together, then we must live unencumbered, unguarded, and unrestrained. That requires us to leave the baggage 
at the feet of Jesus, to let the walls come down, to live openly, openly and transparently, to meet with our brothers and sisters, drawing near to them. And as you'll see in this series, I'm convinced the best space and place for this, for true discipleship, community, fellowship, love, growth, service, and so on, is in the context of small groups. The best space and place to encourage, to pray for, to confess to, to sharpen, to stir one another up is small groups. Make no mistake about it, there's something special about gathering like this with the whole church. But it's in the context of small groups, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or eight, where we truly thrive and grow in Christ, where we truly will consider and encourage, where we truly will draw near to one another. And when that happens, a paradox occurs. Something big comes from the small. Most of you know the name Vincent van Gogh. He lived in the 1800s, considered the greatest Dutch painter after Rembrandt. One of his most famous paintings is the one you see on the screen, The Starry Night. But he had more than 2,100 works of art. And he's arguably one of the most famous and influential figures in the history of Western art. And this is what Vincent van Gogh had to say. Great things are done. Big things are done. By a series of small things brought together. And I think of that quote when we see Jesus take 12 guys and readies them for three years, testing them, teaching them, preparing them, spurring them on towards love and good works, encouraging them. He then plants them, so to speak, sends them out and uses them to start a movement that is unstoppable and has grown unspeakably huge, big, massive, the paradox. He had other followers. He met with the whole group. But he especially focused on these 12 seemingly insignificant guys, his small group made up of unknown guys, and he takes them and he builds his church through them. In 2010, Pew Forum found that the number of Christians around the world was a community of more than 2 billion people. The number of Christians around the world, 2010, a community of believers more than 2 billion that's not counting all the new Christians the last decade. We're all the Christians who came between now and the days of Jesus. And it all started with a small group of 12 meeting together. Not for attendance records, not to say hi and then go back to their day, but meeting together, unencumbered, unguarded, unrestrained. Now, there was one who didn't, and we know his story. 
meeting together, considering and encouraging. And out of that small group came something big. And we'll look more at this in this series. But let it begin with us drawing near to each other, meeting together. Let it be a meeting full of believers, just a few of us, all of us, who are holding nothing back, who are not putting up walls, and who are putting their whole self into the gathering, considering and encouraging, especially as we see the day approaching. With heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward. Some of us find ourselves in one of those three camps or categories. We got a lot of baggage. Mentally, physically, relationally, financially, something with ourselves personally, with our marriage, with our family, with the a boss, an employee, a co-worker, a neighbor, a friend. And God's just calling us to sit at his feet and to lay the baggage down. To live unencumbered, to meet with this community of believers unencumbered. For others of us, man, we've just been putting up walls, trying to hide something, trying to pretend when he's calling us to put the wall down, to put the mask down, to live unguarded. And then for others of us, maybe we've been holding back, truly getting invested wholly into another person's life, and he's calling us to live unrestrained. Or maybe the challenge is, yeah, I've gotten a habit of just kind of checking in, checking out, but man, he's calling me, especially as the day approaches, he's calling me to truly draw near to the church, to one another, to meet together. Maybe, man, I just haven't been considering. Maybe I just haven't been encouraging. What are the spirits leading you in this moment? Just come to him. Just come to him with your heart and your situation. And if you've got a decision to make, even as I pray, you can come forward. West and I will be down here. Father, we thank you. We love you. Help us to live. Help us to gather unencumbered, confessing sins, repenting of sins, laying it all at your feet, whatever, whatever it is. Maybe it's not a sin. Maybe it's just a, fe a fear. Maybe it's just a situation. Help us to lay the baggage at your feet, to cast all of our cares upon you. Help us to live unguarded. Sure, we need to be smart. Sure, we need to recognize situations, but help us to allow ourselves with trusted, loyal, faithful brothers and sisters to live vulnerable lives, to be honest, to be real, to be authentic. Father, help us to see that nothing we have or possess is ours. All of it's a gift. Love us, help us to live unrestrained lives in everything. Draw us to you in this moment. May you be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we stand together, you come if you need to.